You are listening to a Nerd Room Podcast, a member of the Star Wars Commonwealth Podcast Network. Be sure to check out more from the Star Wars Commonwealth on the web at StarWarsCommonwealth.com and take your first steps into a larger world. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Nerd Room MCU Retrospective Series. Over the next 16 months, we'll be discussing and reviewing each and every Marvel Cinematic Universe film leading into a weekend of release review of Avengers Infinity War. I'm on your host, Tim. I'm Troy. And I'm Sanjay. So this is our newest podcast. It's going to be dropping once a month for the next 16 months. We're going to be reviewing, like I said... Each individual MCU film, with the exception of Doctor Strange and Civil War, we've already done that. That's in our Nerd Room catalog, so we're not going to rehash some of those. We're going to integrate that discussion into the wider talk about the MCU here. But every single month, we're going to get a bonus episode here. And we're starting with Iron Man. We're going to go somewhat chronologically through this. We're going to add in the weekend of release reviews of Spider-Man Homecoming, Guardians of the Galaxy, and Black Panther, and Thor 3. So that's going to be a bit confusing in there. So we're going to try to iron that out as best as possible. We thought having those films weekend of release reviews would be best just think of this like the x-men timeline guys some of it will make sense some of it won't but hey just have fun (laughs) if you're curious about what we're going to be reviewing you can always check out our facebook page you can check out our podbean page too troy threw together a really cool graphic that depicts exactly what we're going to reviewing each and every month and we're going to treat this like a normal film review that we've done in the past we're going to go through this we're going to try to keep it somewhat short we're going to run through some of the highlights the characters and also look back on these films with the hindsight of what they've built with the MCU, especially going back to these phase one films where we have the foundation of the MCU set. We're going to see how they actually built into that and how the other films benefit where these films might have fallen short because they don't have that foundation of the MCU that the other films are using to leverage characters and leverage stories off of. So it's going to be interesting to go back and look at these and see if they actually do hold up because some of these films I haven't gone back and revisited, even with Iron Man, in quite some time. So it's going to be interesting here our individual thoughts at how we think this ties into the MCU, how this actually plants those seeds for future events in the MCU. Because this is something coming into it that I wasn't completely familiar with when I first saw Iron Man. I had no idea that they were building a cinematic universe. And to be honest with you, I think Captain America was the first MCU film I ever saw. Like, this flew totally under my radar. Wow. That's interesting because you would have thought that they would have stuck with uh, Captain America to launch this universe. Yeah, it makes sense yeah. chronologically, World War II, but maybe they figured we've tried three times with Cap. And mind you, they were low budget TV movies and not the best quality, but maybe they wanted a fresh start. Yeah. I think that had a lot to do with why they chose Iron Man. It's really the only character that didn't have a live action depiction of any sorts. We saw Thor in the original Incredible Hulk TV series. So bad. I know, not great. But this is a character that people aren't familiar with. This is a C-list character that has now risen to the elevation of an A-list character amongst the general population. But before this, I really didn't know who Iron Man was. I wasn't a big comic book reader in 2008. And I was familiar with the characters from the cartoons, from those TV shows going way back when. But I really didn't know who these characters were. There wasn't really much even Iron Man in the animated series. I mean, you had a Spider-Man, an X-Men animated series, Fantastic Four. Iron Man was just like, he had his own show, but I think it only lasted a season. And it was way before our time. He had, he had during the Fox run, there was the, there was the Incredible Hulk run, and then yeah. there was the Iron Man run. 
Um, it's, it's pretty cool. And it also used to come on with uh, the Fantastic Four. Oh, okay. And it had a really cool killer theme song. If you can go out there on YouTube, check it out. <laughs> but um, that was actually my first introduction really into the character was the animated show. It was about three seasons. And you got to see like the West Coast Avengers in there, in and out. So it was, it's a pretty cool oh, okay. cartoon back in the day. And that, that Iron Man actually crossed over into uh, the Spider-Man Fox That's series right. a couple of times with Venom showing up. So yeah, check that out. Didn't they have like an episode where Spider-Man and Iron Man team up, team up and they fight Carnage and Venom? That's right, Carnage Venom so and cool. uh, War Machine I think popped up too. Yeah. This is a massive crossover. Yeah, and yeah. I think he was in the uh, Secret Wars episode of the yes, animated series. Yeah, yes, I do remember that. And yeah. they also did have one with the Hulk 2 crossing over where they really? did the whole um, Hulkbuster episode. Which Seriously? Everybody loves. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's yeah, awesome. Check it out on the, on the Hulk cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there is some history there. And this character goes way back to 1963. First day being Tales of Suspense. We do see him as an original Avenger as well in this original Iron Man suit. But looking back at the state of the MCU in 2008, it's not what it is today. This no. is not a, a household juggernaut of a film production studio in Marvel, right? That's right. And looking back, you know, Marvel was bankrupt in yeah. the 90s, right? Yeah. yeah. And it comes down to the Congo crash. That's right. Yeah. So in the 90s, you know, people were buying two, three million. Well, not people, but uh, comic books were like X-Men and Death of Superman. Two, three million copies were being sold on a monthly basis, which is crazy. Unprecedented this day. Oh, it would never happen now. And it was mostly driven by speculators thinking, okay, well, comic books in the 60s and 50s sell for thousands of dollars now. So if I buy comic books in the 80s and 90s, eventually this will put my kids through college or this will be my retirement plan. So people oversaturated the market and then it crashed hard, almost killed the entire industry. DC was hurting. I don't even think Image was created yet. No, nope. no. Nope. Marvel was hurting. They were a public company, so I mean, their stock went from thirty bucks to like two dollars. So yeah. plus, crazy. The, the, the content kind of went down quite a bit when you had that death of Superman. That was a huge, huge event that took away a lot of consumers from Marvel because Marvel tried competing with a, a not so well received series, which was the Clone Saga by Spider-Man, yeah. and that turned people off big time. Yeah, um, X-Men was really the only people doing it for Marvel. Uh, Fantastic Four wasn't selling, Iron Man wasn't selling. Yeah. None of these books were really selling. You yeah, know? you had that Onslaught series that wasn't very well received. Yeah, and, then yeah. Heroes Reborn came off of that one. Yeah, they were, yeah, they're in a state of flux, and they needed to do something. Yeah, and so what they did was they started selling off the licensing rights to the characters for films, yes. to the likes of Sony, who took Spider-Man, Universal took the Incredible Hulk, and Fox took the X-Men. Yeah. And so you have a studio here or a an amalgamation of different entities within Marvel that no longer have the accessibility or the rights to produce their own films. So having sold these off, this saved the company, mind you. There's there's a lot of speculation that Marvel could go under, but this was what propped them back up. They basically sold packages of stories of directors, of actors to companies to basically finance, produce, and distribute these films. And the first films that we got out of the gate was the Blade series. Yep. Yep. We got X-Men and then following up with Spider-Man. Yep. Yeah, those are huge hits. They're massive oh, yeah. hits. Spider-Man being the biggest one there. Yeah, and that spans from 1998 to 2002, I believe. But these movies <laughs> did prove that comic book movies were viably commercially. These could produce movies that were going to generate cash flow. Oh, and yeah. you look at movies like Spider-Man coming out in 2002. This was the biggest opening weekend of all time. I think it was one of the first, if not the first movie to crack $100 million in its that three-day opening weekend. Yeah. It's crazy. And, you know, you go back to that time and what did we get in the 90s? The last big comic book movie, Batman and Robin. And so, like, there was a huge stigma against comic book movies at the time. So they really needed to buck that trend. And Spider-Man pulled through for them. And X-Men pulled through. I mean, if it wasn't for 
Marvel, you could argue that there would be no comic book movies that we have today. I mean, I'm going to make a controversial statement here, maybe controversial, but I say Iron Man is the most important comic book movie of all time. Yeah, well, it came off the heels of these movies that were made and well-received as well as made a ton of money. And Marvel saw what they were leaving on the table here. They were making pennies to the dollar when it comes to Spider-Man and X-Men. Like the studios that controlled them had all the rights. And so what Marvel did, they turned around and said, okay, we're going to start self-financing movies, producing our own movies under a Marvel Entertainment or a Marvel Studios banner. So what they did, they took out like a $500 million loan. They put up for collateral several characters, the Avengers, Black Panther, Captain America. These were characters that were put up so that they're able to get this loan, this $500 million loan. And what's that? So they would produce 10 movies over eight years with this $500 million plus whatever they get coming in. Oh, okay. And what's interesting here is that they chose Iron Man to be the first movie out of the gates, but they didn't even have the rights in 2004 when they made this deal. Because Iron Man was sitting over at New Line Cinema. It had spent the better part of two decades bouncing around in different studios from Sony to New Line Cinema to Universal. And there's people like Tom Cruise attached to this at one point. <laughs> Nick Cage attached to this at oh, one point. Oh, my goodness. Imagine that, right? He coming off of Ghost Rider. He was attached to this at one point or rumored to be attached to oh, this. Oh, right? man. That, that's, that's, you know, sometimes things work out for the better. And I think this is one of those times. Even Tom Cruise, I just couldn't see him as uh, Iron Man anymore. No, not see, at I think, all. I think going back to those days, I could have. Because Tom Cruise was just such a huge action star. I think I could have seen that. Now, in this present time, it would have been yeah, a horrible decision. I guess. But I think back then, I mean, who would have ever thought Robbie Downey, Robert Downey Jr. would have been the man? Maybe uh, George you know. Clooney? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so 2005 also, Marvel Studios secured Paramount to be the distributor of the films. Because as a brand new studio, a brand new self-financing studio, they need someone to push these out there. So if you go back and look at these old films that we just watched, you see the Paramount flag flying up there, right? And Paramount did really well to get this deal. Because yeah. essentially this carried them right through until Iron Man 3 when Disney ended up buying the distribution rights back off Paramount for a very hefty sum. Yeah. So you have kind of this amalgamation of studios producing these first films. And you have Marvel coming into the game with a really risky actor and a relatively unknown director and a relatively unknown comic book superhero to start this brand new universe, this MCU off, right? To kick it into high gear. When you go back and look, 2006 is when they got the rights back to Black Widow, to Thor, to Incredible Hulk. And then subsequently after that, they ended up getting back Black Panther. And so they were putting together this studio and kind of grabbing back some of these characters while they were setting up the foundation for this universe. So thinking back, you got a $500 million loan. You don't control all of your characters. And you're saying, look, I'm going to build this massive universe, this comic book-esque universe around these films. Like it's a pretty ambitious idea to begin with. And plus you don't control some of your biggest characters, like your X-Men's and your Spider-Man's. It's a big, big gamble. Just, you know, thinking of a regular movie that wants to get a sequel the next time around. That's a huge enough gamble, let alone trying to build a universe with characters that you may not even potentially own. Yeah. yeah. Huge. That's, that's crazy. I couldn't even imagine in today's day and age. It's, it's such an interesting story, such a great success story. It just, everything, like the right pieces just fell into place. And I'm just so thankful for it because, you know, we probably wouldn't even be doing this podcast right now if this film doesn't come out. No, and I don't think I would have ever gotten into really comics because oh, no. I said it before on our other podcast that the MCU is what drove me into reading comic books. I loved what they set up once I eventually got into it. This idea of continuity spanning across films. And I translated that into written comic and I was like, I'm probably going to love this. Like go to the Captain America comic book and Iron Man's there. And you go to the Hulk comic book and Cap's there. Like it's this concept of continuity. I just love it. 
Yeah, I mean, and you never even got that before. If you look at the comic book movies that came before, there was no crossover. X-Men didn't cross over with Fantastic Four. Uh, Spider-Man wasn't crossing over with Ghost Rider at Sony. You look at Warner Brothers, the closest they came was a line in Batman and Robin when uh, Batman's like, this is why Superman works alone. I mean, that's the closest they came. There was no crossover whatsoever. So even in films... I mean, you get like Alien vs. Predator was a crossover, but that was rare. Yeah. Uh, Freddy vs. Jason, another crossover. But I mean, you don't really see that in other films nowadays, but now everything is like a cinematic universe. Yeah. This is the trailblazer. Yeah, because you almost set yourself up as sequels, right? Like the sequel to Iron Man is technically Incredible Hulk when you're talking about the franchise and you get this name recognition and they had to do this with the characters that they're putting out there because... You look at the Captain America, the ancient, the 1990s, and before that, the, the, like how poorly received and poorly done some of these were. And you look yeah. at these characters, like who knew who really who Thor was prior to the MCU? And now Black Panther, like these are household names, like oh, Iron yeah. Man. Like these are characters that people weren't familiar with, and they had to somehow get these out there. They had to do something different. And I give all the credit in the world to Marvel for taking this step and trying to build this cinematic universe. And I think it comes down to taking risks, and that's what a lot of this movie is about yes. is taking risks when you look at the director the character the actor, the actor yeah. everything about this was taking risk and even the story itself it's telling a real world story it's taking some of the cues from the dark knight universe right yep. the nolan what he was doing is trying to ground some of this and say you know this could really happen in real life i feel like this could be happening here not too far in the distant future. We could have Iron Man suit. And I think that's a lot of what John Favreau was trying to put on the screen is like this believability, but also it's a comic book movie. And yep. we're seeing this strung through the MCU now is that you're taking different types of films, whether it's espionage films or, or you know big action or technology or spy thrillers or whatever, and putting that into the comic book and blending those. We're not just getting this pure smash em up comic book movie. We're getting characters and i think that's what a lot of this movie is about is characters is about heart um i mean you should talk about like uh unknown director john favreau like what do you guys remember him from before iron man to be honest with you swingers yeah swingers yeah, yeah beautiful and, baby and a supporting character in a lot of vince vaughn movies yeah that's it right <laughs> yeah. like Robert he did Elf as well yeah <laughs> I like love that movie. fantastic movie yeah and he also did zathura so that's like his biggest oh, okay. cg movie before doing iron man yeah. so yeah. yeah and i think with favreau they're trying to bring in again something different but with favreau comes that comedy that underlying tone that you see in every single marvel movie now and i think that's really what they're looking for was something a little different you take a look at the seriousness and the portrayal that you do see in the x-men series like there's some comedy there but not like this no no and this is a tone that he set in this universe so they're looking for something different and he was also a big fan of practical blending with cg he didn't want the cg to be driving this he wanted people to seamlessly think that i can't tell if that's practical or if that's cg and i think he really did accomplish that in this film yeah and you know you talk about iron man i mean being the first one i don't think you could have done an iron man film properly in the 90s you know the practical effects could only go so far and so you needed to advance that and with spider-man and x-men they showed hey you can do uh out of this world characters I mean, you look at other the comic book movies that came before. They're all pretty, like, grounded superheroes to an extent. I mean, Captain America, you had his thing. Um, Hulk had his thing. Superman. Uh, Superman, Batman, X-Men, Spider-Man. Like, you know, for the most part. I mean, Iron Man is just so completely out there. And then he has to be done in today's day and age or, you know, in 2008. You know, a 1990s Iron Man film, can you imagine how bad that would look? Well, even if you go back to the 2000 X-Men and even 2000 Lee Ang Hulk. Oh, 
Like the graphics there, the CG is way behind what it is. It's gone leaps and bounds into 2008. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. I think they had to make this at this time. Otherwise, you get another movie that doesn't hold the test of time. Because we discussed this a little bit before about how well this movie translates into present day. Like there's not many flaws in this, even though we're almost 10 years out from this movie first dropping in theaters. Well, that's crazy. I mean, you put that in perspective. It's been 10 years. Man, this time, yeah. flies, time flies by. Like, Wow. Yeah, yeah, it holds up. Looks good. It does look good. And this movie, 10 years ago, when it first dropped in theaters, like it was really well-received, both critically and from the general population, as well as financially. This movie had a $98 million opening weekend, which Ooh. is huge for a character that is relatively unknown to the general population. Yeah. Even comic book movies aren't what they are today. They've basically taken the spot of your major tentpole blockbusters yeah. now. Absolutely. Like, that is what people look forward to, and we're getting tons of them now coming out in the theaters like oh, every yeah. month we've got almost a comic book movie it's yeah and they're like the pinnacle right they're yep. the action films of the 90s the new uh the new westerns the new yeah. uh gangster yeah. flicks right yeah exactly yep. yeah i mean they're that new action film that everyone is always wanting to see like what's next what's better i mean they've taken the action film and they've upgraded it into the superhero film exactly and so this movie also did 318 million dollars domestically and 500 plus million dollars almost 600 million dollars globally which still stands as one of the top grossing marvel cinematic universe films to date it's pretty impressive Uh, what do you contribute the opening weekend uh bump to i mean 98 million opening weekend even though it's got good word of mouth i mean that's still a lot opening weekend word of mouth typically you know you see like third fourth week it uh doing well i mean was this marketed? What What do you remember of the marketing of this film before it came out? Oh, the trailer. Everyone's reaction. Because when I heard the news they're making an Iron Man movie, I thought, one, how are you going to do this? And two, if you do do this, it's just going to be the classic tinfoil suit that he has. You know, yeah. The big, bulky-looking thing. And I'm like, that's going to be boring. That's going to be lame. And then that trailer, when you see him flying the first time in the hot, the hot rod, red and yellow Iron Man costume with the rocket, I was... I was blown away. Nothing has ever impressed me (laughs) so much at that point. It was, it was incredible. So from there I was sold and that trailer got so much replay value because YouTube was also on the rise. YouTube Mm. was kind of a new thing too. So you could watch these trailers over and over again. It's a really a whole new game back then, right? I'm going to have to check that trailer out. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Did you guys see this opening weekend? Yes. Yes, (laughs) I did. Okay. So the funny story, how I saw this movie. So I was in India 2008 and we were traveling about, and so I kept seeing posters of Iron Man and I knew it was coming out, but I was like, no, I kind of want to see this in English and not Hindi. Makes sense. So I'm like, okay, I'll see it when I get home. So like a couple weeks later, come by and then I see it in theaters and I was so jet lagged because I saw it like two days after I got home. So it's like a 12 hour time difference that I actually fell asleep in the theater. So it wasn't until like years later when I bought this on Blu-ray finally and I saw it maybe like five years ago that I finally saw the film in its entirety. Like it just took me that long. I just like totally forgot about it. And I was like, oh yeah, I never actually fully saw Iron Man in theaters. So there's my story. I mean, I was five years too late, I guess. But <laughs> I mean, hey, it was well worth the wait. It was a great film. Yeah. And it's like I said, Captain America was my first experience with the MCU. I do not remember this movie in theaters. Mm-hmm. I was just finishing university. I really don't know where my head was at the time, but it yeah. definitely wasn't in this universe yeah. i had no idea what this movie was wow. until after i got this notional idea that wow 
they're building this universe. Who's yeah. this Iron Man? And like, it, it's really interesting that this it's, it takes up so much of my life, and it's such a huge passion of mine right now. Mm-hmm. Ten years out, but ten years ago, I had no idea who this character was yeah. and what this film was. I, again, I probably saw it for the first time on Blu-ray on wow. TV. Yeah. I did not see this opening weekend, <laughs> so I need to hear from you, Troy. Like, yeah. <laughs> what was yeah. your your reception? Because both Sanjay and I didn't have yeah. that experience of seeing the theaters. Coming to the theaters, do you remember what it was like? Uh, yeah, I was blown away. You know, uh, Marvel isn't the only one that took a risk on this movie. I took a risk on this movie because uh, my girlfriend now fiance slash wife to be soon uh we took a gamble you know introducing her to this comic book movie like this is a big risk yeah and we go in there you know it's a pretty pretty well received crowd it's huge and we go in there front row pretty much and we see this movie and we're both just in awe like we walked out there she was blown away she wasn't a superhero person at all you know totally flipped the script nowadays because she's really involved with uh all this comics and jedis got and started all that early. stuff yeah, yeah. Got started early. so and then uh, the movie was a success because we went in um like I think a couple months later, whenever Incredible Hulk came out, and we uh, again saw that opening opening weekend. So it's a huge nice. hit. Uh, the crowd loved it, and you know it's cool seeing the merchandise. You know they had the helmets come out, and the yeah. kids had their um, the repulsor rifles, whatever going on with their oh, hands. Okay. And huge, huge hit. Just absolutely loved this movie. I had the uh, my little brother. He bought the uh, teaser poster, but not like the giant double sided one, but the one at Walmart. It was just such a cool movie poster where it's just his mask, yeah, and then it's an like, awesome yeah, poster. that's the T. Yeah, that's such a good poster. Yeah, man. I wish I could have went back in time and bought that. When it's it worth came a out. fortune right now. Yeah, the double sided. Yeah, Whew, it's one of the best movie posters I think out there. It's just so iconic. It's mm-hmm. just simple and it just works on such a good level. Like, I love that simplicity of it. That's like one of my favorite posters in the MCU. And you do yeah. see the other movies trying to replicate that. Thor does something similar, Captain right. America. But nothing ever captured it quite like Iron Man did. And it's it doesn't have anything on it. It just has the date and the Iron Man mask. No Robert yeah. Denny Jr., nothing. Yeah. Sometimes those can go the other way, but this one just hit on every note. Yeah. And just... You know, this film, we just talk about, just marvel about it. You like that pun? Uh, about everything, because everything just seemed to work. Like, it was just, you know, it was the golden goose, to borrow a phrase from the film. Like, everything. The marketing was on point. The opening weekend, uh, the actor, the director, it's just the special effects. Yeah. I mean, they couldn't have done a better start to the start of the franchise. Yeah. That is an excellent segue in. Shall we get into and talk about this film in a little bit more detail? I yes. feel like, you know, with segue, speaking of the film, I should come in with a cigar in my mouth, <laughs> kind of like Obadiah there in the one scene. <laughs> Such a cool scene. Like, they even made segues look cool. <laughs> the only film ever to have a cool segue in it. All right, so this film kicks into high gear right away. Immediately with the ACDC back in black, you've got Robert Downey Jr., embodying Tony Stark here, talking smack. And this opening sequence, like it's interesting how they did this somewhat non-linear storytelling when they go through this film. And I think it really benefited because you take this sequence and put it exactly where it is chronologically in film time. It doesn't work as well, I don't think. Like this is a great way to open this film. Like I just love how they've done this. Yeah, I mean, and talk about uh, taking a gamble. I mean, look at back at the first comic book movies. They always start the origin story from like the beginning. Yeah. You watch the original Superman movie, you see him as a baby. You see him even before he's born. Batman, where does it start? Death of his parents as a child. This one, he doesn't start as a child. Yeah. And it doesn't it wouldn't make sense for him to be a child just being like this child genius running around like, hey, I'm Tony Stark, I'm a child genius, you know? Yeah. So kind of a kind of like Deadpool approach, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, way, Deadpool's kind of take uh, little hints from this movie, right? Oh yeah. yeah. And there's nice. some exposition in the following scene when they do go back the three months here that kind of runs through his life really quickly, kind of gives you a little insight towards his father and how he grew up, the how smart he was, the genius type kid that kind of grew up in this limelight of Howard Stark, the man that worked 
worked on the Manhattan Project. Yeah. And he's got this legacy to live up to. Like, I think there's a lot there in that exposition piece when we're with Rhodes at the casino there. Like, I think that this film and i think we'll talk about this as we go it's swift it's good writing it gets straight to the point it doesn't belabor on anything which i think other movies previously in the comic book world they kind of drag these things out. they show a little more this tells you a lot of things but i think it tells you very economically it kind of goes through this rapidly but you get the relationships i think really quickly it was it was a little quick i mean some of the stuff was kind of convenient the the best part i thought of the uh montage was when they say uh, how his father died in the car crash. And they've carried that through all the way to Civil War. I mean, they could have easily changed it and have him die another way to fit the Civil War narrative, but they kept that through. I mean, that's just planning ahead. I mean, I doubt they planned ahead. but Just great writers. eh? Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Robert Downey Jr. We mentioned at the top here that he was a big risk coming to this. He had very public issues with substance abuse. And then this was his comeback movie. And there was a film before this that was supposed to be produced in 2005 that they wouldn't bond the film for. They wouldn't insure it because of Robert Downey Jr. Hmm. And that was a huge issue going into this. And I think John Favreau, like he's not your most obvious choice, but John Favreau did say in an interview that he sees a lot of Tony Stark in Robert Downey Jr., this battling with substance abuse. Yes, demon in the bottle. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Robert Downey Jr., why he does so well in this character is because it is Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One thing they did in this film, and you can see it on the screen, is they let him ad-lib a lot of these lines. Because oh, yeah. a lot of this film, when it was in pre-production, was about the action sequence, about the CGI, splashing that on the screen. And a lot of the story actually wasn't written, particularly when it comes to the lines. I think some of the actors struggled with that, but Robert Downey Jr. shines through with that. Flourishes, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, they did a good job. They cast a relatively unknown. Like, before that, the only time I heard of Robert Downey Jr. was on a Simpsons episode where they go to Paramount, and then they're like, oh, there's Robert Downey Jr. shooting out with the police. And then Bart goes, hey, I don't see any cameras. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, because uh, T- Terrence Howard was actually the big pick for this yeah. movie. He was the highest, highest paid actor. And yeah. uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, too, is Oscar-nominated. Yeah. But even then, she wasn't like... She was in Shakespeare in Love, but, I mean, nothing like major like this. Yeah. No. And the, the one thing that I think that Downey does, even in, the, in these opening sequences in particular, is he makes you like him. He's a bit of a dick mm-hmm. or a major dick, right? This is a person that you probably wouldn't relate with in real life, but he makes him seem relatable for whatever reason. Like, it's all about Downey here. He brings you in. He engages you in this character, and he makes you want to see more of this dickhead, right? Yeah. Of this yeah. guy that is selling weapons, doesn't really care, is out there womanizing and all this. Like, these are traits of a character that... In some cases, you could really dislike, but he really makes you love this character. That's right. And out of the suit. Yeah. yeah. And he's, he knows he's out of the ordinary compared to what we had with the Peter Parker, a yeah. Bruce Wayne, a Boy Scout Superman. This was so different at the time that we haven't had um, a character like this ever. No. Yeah, the, the, clo- the closest would be Wolverine, kind of. But even then, he wasn't this extreme. No. Yeah. And th- this character was so well received by the general population that you did see a major evolution of the character in the comic books. This is not exactly how the character was pre-Iron Man 2008. Yeah. The character always did have that playboy, billionaire, Howard Hughes-type character in him, but yeah. not like this. And you saw in the comic books them starting to reflect a lot of Robert Downey Jr.'s not only his 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 likeness, but also the character that he had become. This, yeah. you know, cocky playboy, right? Yeah, especially yeah. in Ultimate Universe. Yes. Yep. Yeah. He kind of reminds me of James Bond with metal armor. He, he, you know, he's the coolest kid in school. Like, you know, he, you know, like, okay, this guy's probably a dick, but like, if he says hi to you in the lunchroom, you're like, oh my god, Kyle said hi to me today in the lunchroom. Like, did you see that? Like, he just has that something about him where you hate him, like 
behind his back, you know, with all your friends. He's like, oh, Kyle's such a jerk. And then he's like, hi, Sanji. And you're like, oh, Kyle said hi. <laughs> <laughs> Kyle, did you have a Kyle in your high school? Oh, uh, no. Surprisingly not. Maybe I did. My secret crush, my secret crush Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> so they've taken this character, his origin story, and they've updated it a bit here. So originally in Tales of Suspense, the 1963 version of Iron Man, it was set in Vietnam. It was set at the height of the Cold War. And I went back and I watched some of the old, sta- older Stanley interviews where he talks about writing the origin story of Iron Man. Now he is recollecting his writing from 20, 30, 40 years ago at the time. But he does say that he wanted to put this character in there that was like this major capitalist, really represented the industrial military complex and really stick it to (laughs) the ordinary population because this character was toned down a bit when the war became less favorable in the United States. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that they've evolved this character and adapted it to present day and they've brought in this very real Afghanistan war and very real enemy and this was a slight risk i think like if they had played this wrong this could have went south but i think they handled the enemy here the villain at least the 10 rings as they are very well in this film and i think that that also helped this film elevate itself it was relevant it was of the time and i like how they adapted modern day because we're still living and at the time, it's a little more fresh in a post 9-11 world, right? We're seven years out from that. We're still involved in a very bloody and a very unfavored at times war where we're seeing soldiers die. And you're trying to adapt that into a big Marvel superhero flick, right? And how they approach this, I think, was very well done. Yeah, I mean, it could have came off as offensive if, using the Ten Rings and using uh, having it set in Afghanistan. Yeah. But it actually didn't because, I mean, you have the Ten Rings, but they're not just one race of people. They say, like, they speak Russian, Hungarian. They're all around. Like, Ten Rings is this worldwide organization. So they didn't paint the bad guy. They didn't paint, like, one person or one specific culture culture as, like, you know, evil or bad. It was, like, just this organization. It was kind of like Hydra, you know? It was everyone. It wasn't just, like, one single thing. So I think they really did that well. Otherwise, it could have came off bad. Like, uh, ah, what's the movie? Uh, James Cameron, Arnold Schwarzenegger terminator no uh he (laughs) true lies Lies. yeah it could have been like true lies where it comes off as pretty offensive so uh they did this one well i think what else they did here was it wasn't like they had these terrorist events on western people or on whomever they're shown to be this these relentless villains that were attacking their own people they weren't shown to be terrorists as they're depicted in modern media they were shown to be just basic mercenaries and people that were attacking helpless people like i like that they did it that way because it made them seem even more villainous like yeah. it didn't bring that realism of terrorism in the west like i think it's a really real problem that they were addressing there yeah. and it was something that they were trying to highlight about how the people are suffering there too like even though we're at war mm-hmm. the people there are suffering more yeah it's a fine line to walk and they handled it pretty well yeah yeah, no. yeah hats off to the writer and the director on that one yeah so when we do flash back to this casino scene, this is a very fun scene. This is Robert Downey just showing off his acting chops here. And this is when we get the introduction to of Obadiah Stane, what becomes our eventual villain for this movie. The real Lex Luthor. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, this is the MCU. Let's, uh, let's keep it there, okay? <laughs> Troy, I'm always trying to keep you on point. You're always trying to veer off to the DC way. And I'm like, Troy, no. <laughs> when I remembered back on this character, Jeff Bridges, one 
He's fantastic yes. in this role. He I is. love the shaved head with the beard. He's got a great look to him. But the cigar. I always yeah. thought he fell into this Marvel trope of weaker villains. But having gone back and rewatched this two times in the last couple of days, yeah. he is absolutely fantastic in this role. Yeah, I'm glued to the character every time he pops up on the screen. I just wanted more of him. Yeah, he does a good job. Um, I wouldn't say he was one of the better ones. I mean, I watched this twice as well uh, the last couple of days. And, you know, he does a good job. Like, when he's – the suit looks awesome. Um, we'll get into that later. And he does a really good job with his mannerisms and um, just his acting. And his, he has his presence about him when he's like – Tony Stark built this in a cave. Like that line is just so on point. As but he pounds on the guy's chest. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> you know, I, I just, I just don't buy his motivation in this film. I mean, so he's Howard's or he's uh, Tony's dad's like second in command, and then all of a sudden he just turns on Tony. I, I just was like, what? See, I'm the 360. I kind of feel like there's a, a slow burn throughout this whole course that we haven't seen, but I, I really get that sense that he's been in the background playing these strings and he's been wanting to take this company for himself this whole time. Yeah, I, I totally believe his motivations. I mean, I don't, I don't think that because... Um, so what was his motivation to pay the Ten Rings in the first place? He's just like, uh, Tony, like, Tony's making all these awesome weapons for him. He's making millions of dollars. Like, he's living in, like, Gold Street. Like, why would he get rid of Tony? There's other ways he could get rid of Tony as well. Like, just say he's incompetent. The guy's like a drunk. He's like a womanizer. Like, you could easily go to the board. It's much easier than trying to pay some terrorist organization to but kill him. The prince them. always wants the king's throne, right? No matter yeah. how good the prince's life is. Yeah. Know, all the ladies he wants, all the money he wants, yeah. he always has his eye on the prize. And I think that's a bit of what it's But I agree with you that that motivation is a bit muddled in this because you do eventually see the reveal that he did hire the Ten Rings to kidnap and kill Tony Stark. Yeah. But he he figured that he had given the world or given the company everything. This Jericho missile that he does so cool. display in this opening sequence, mm-hmm. he, he feels that that is the last egg that he's going to give. Like he makes a reference, yeah. like you said, yeah. the golden goose, yes, right? right. Yeah. I thought you had given all of your eggs and you did have one more to give. And mm-hmm. it's an interesting kind of metaphor that he does give a little later on about how you're trying to rid the world of weapons, but yeah. you give it its best one. Right? Yeah. And so I think there's a lot of that in there. And I, there is some muddling. Yeah, I will mm-hmm. agree. And there's some ambiguity to his motivation here. But I think it all comes down to he wants the throne. He's going to do what he has to do to get at it. And he does get a little spun off once things start to tumble and once his plan doesn't really come to fruition with Tony Stark actually surviving through the, the kidnapping sequence in Afghanistan. Yeah, he underestimated yeah. him, right? I spoke at the top about this film being economic and swift with its writing because we also get the introduction of James Rhodey Rhodes in this awards sequence as well, the same sequence we do see Obadiah introduced in. And this is an interesting character played by Terrence Howard, who, Troy, you mentioned that he was a really hot actor at the time. Mm-hmm. We do see him replaced in subsequent movies and... When I remember this movie from the first couple of times I saw it, I didn't really like Terrence Howard in it. I really liked him in this viewing, though. I <laughs> yeah. don't know what it is. Yeah. He is good. He really is. Yeah, I, I, much like you, actually. I didn't really care for him the first time I saw this movie. I was watching it recently, though. I really did appreciate the character or the actor or what he did for the role. And I still find I wish we did have him going into the next installments. Yeah, I was trying yeah. to picture him as Rhodey in Iron Man 2, even into Age of Ultron and Civil War. Yeah. And I can see him there. He holds a bit more gravitas to him than I think... Don Cheadle does and this character in itself like it's a great character this stems back to the original comic book days of Iron Man he's a lieutenant colonel in here he's a liaison to Stark Industries as well as a good friend and mentor at least he refers to Tony 
in this way. And this relationship between the two of them, did you buy it fully that they were friends as well as business partners? Because I really got that from the both of their portrayals. Oh, right yeah. Right off the bat. Yeah. I agree. I mean, he's kind of like the sidekick. Um, but, you know, Terrence Howard does an amazing job here. And you totally buy it. They have really friendly banter. And there's that plane scene where he's like, no, nah, I'm not going to drink. And then the next scene you see so they're good. drinking. And that. then there's like the stewardesses dancing around and stuff. And he's just like going off like a drunken like friend. You know, it, it was amazing. Like, it was such a good uh, good scene. And uh, you totally buy him as Iron Man's friend and mentor. Yeah, there's a lot of great chemistry there. And the dialogue back and forth, the banter is fantastic. Yeah. And they seem to play off each other very well, the actors individually. They're both very strong actors. And whatever they're doing ad-libbing, I buy that fully 100% that they've been friends. And there's references that they've been friends since 1987. I don't know how much of that was a joke on Tony's part. But this relationship is completely believable in this world that he is, yes, the military man. But there is some underlying relationship between him and Tony Stark that goes beyond the business into more of a friendship level and I think that builds as we go through this universe but this is where I think it's the most well done is in this movie subsequent movies you don't really get that same impression from Don Cheadle's portrayal of James Rhodey Rhodes no and I really feel like Terrence Howard fit the more of the military mold going through this um yeah, it's unfortunate. I really like that nod, too, that he has to the war machine where he walks past uh, oh, yeah, the yeah. armor and he's like, oh, baby, not this time. Yeah. yeah. Next time. I love that. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, Terrence Howard is a little bit bigger than Don Cheadle. Yeah. And I think he's a little bit more comedic. Don Cheadle plays it a little bit more serious, a little bit more straight. Um, but I think Terrence Howard has more of that, you know, to say that ad-libbing, those quibs and stuff. And it just adds a little bit more uh, comedic uh, interaction between the two. Yeah, and I think you buy that more, like you said, as the, as a military man. But when he does have those quips, those funny moments, that tone that Marvel set in this film, they're a bit more believable. They seem a bit more stressed from Don Cheadle. And I may change that as we walk through this retrospective. And I see Don Cheadle in Iron Man 2, Iron Man 3. But mm-hmm. I get it more here, and I like it more here. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. We also get the introduction of Happy Hogan here, who's played by John Favreau. He found a way to insert himself into this film. And and what a way to insert yourself. He plays this role really well. In the comics, Happy Hogan, he's named Happy because he's always got this serious demeanor about him. He's an ex-boxer. He's a big guy. And I love, again, what Favreau did here. Like, I remember this being somewhat a throwaway character. And I think as we get to Iron Man 3, he becomes a bit less of that Happy Hogan and a bit more of a goofball. Yeah. But here he plays this character so well. Yeah. And what a nice director you know because in the comics pepper Potts is, is actually his main screen yeah. and it's pretty nice of Favreau to pass off pepper Potts to tony stark so it's a good friend a cool guy. Yeah. Yeah. passing off the beautiful yeah. babies yeah. uh sorry going back a little bit to obadiah is he in the comic books yeah oh okay i believe so is he um, warmonger I, I believe he's in he's in the ultimate for sure at least yeah and he's he is ironmonger oh okay like they, they've taken a lot of the elements from the comic books and actually translated them into this film they've done really well putting this character on a screen as well as the elements in the backdrop to that universe that they built in 1963 even down to yinsing who is in the cave with him which we'll get to here in a little bit so one interesting thing about this, so once we get past this this Vegas scene, we eventually get back to the West Coast, which is an interesting setting for a Marvel comic book character. Because right. yeah. the headquarters of Marvel is in New York, and we've always seen these characters 
headquartered out of New York. And we do see Spider-Man there. We do see parts of the X-Men. That is a little bit more in kind of that DC world or whatever. But mm-hmm. a lot of the current comic book films are set in a New York-esque or a New York in itself yes. setting. And this takes us all the way to the West Coast, which was a fantastic idea. I think this fits the character of Tony Stark. I really do see him living on the West Coast in that massive Malibu mansion more than I would see him sitting up in some sort of high-rise that we eventually do get in New York. Right. No, I agree. Uh, does Tony live in New York or California in the comics? He has a place in New York. Yeah. yeah. He probably has a place everywhere. That's but Tony Stark. We do see more likely in New York. Yeah, he's... Yeah. Like, the original comic books are all set in that New, yeah. New York, right? Yeah. yeah, and then he does move in subsequent films. You see uh, Stark Towers. Yeah, like, yeah. he does... Like, once his mansion blows up... Yeah. 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 He does yeah. migrate into New York yeah. in the, the upstate New York area with the, the Avengers... Uh, headquarters and yeah. all that, right? yeah. By the comics, you have the West Coast Avengers, which I think it was Rhodey led yep, the Iron Man. Yeah, because that was a whole then. demon in a bottle thing exactly. where he wasn't Iron Man anymore. Yeah, then Rhodey, Rhodey was Iron Man, but yeah. no one knew. And, and then the suitcase caused him headaches and he yeah. got oh. worse. <laughs> yeah. There's a bunch of stuff. I always that. preferred War Machine to Iron Man in the comics just because I thought his costume was cooler when he has like that gun over his shoulder that, like, uh, I don't even know what it's called, but like the circular, minigun. yeah, yeah the mini gun, right? yeah, it's so cool. So, and I like the black and the silver more than the uh, red and yellow. So, I was always more of a war machine guy. Oh, and cool. I thought they did, I thought they did the character justice. Yeah, we're talking about adapting comic book characters into this film. What did you guys think of taking Jarvis, who's the more of the traditional butler, the Alfred type of character, yeah. and evolving him and molding him into this AI that we do see in the film? I thought that was genius. Brilliant. I thought it was really cool. It's kind yeah. of a mobile dog going back to his old cartoon days because when you watch the cartoon series, he kind of had this, this, I can't remember the character's name, but he did have this computer kind of AI Jarvis-like character, but he wasn't called Jarvis, I don't believe. So it's kind of cool that they mixed Jarvis in here from the movie universe or the comic universe and mash-molded him with um, the animated series. I mean, Jarvis that we all know and eventually giving us vision down the road. Yeah. yeah. Right. No, and it's cool that they've kept the same actor throughout yeah, all these Paul films. Yeah, I mean, they've done a great job of continuity. Um, I think the AI was great. I mean, as you said, you've already brought up the Alfred reference and it would have been just people would have been comparing him to Alfred from the Batman film. So the upgrade was good and I assume they've made this upgrade in the comics as well. Yes, they have taken this and evolved it right into the comics. I think right now he's got something that's called Pepper. And you do see Friday, which was referenced in the comic books as well, yeah. prior to being in the end of Age of Ultron there, I believe. Yeah. It'd be a little bit weird have this, like, billionaire with this really old, like, British dude taking care of him. <laughs> like... There's some fantastic <laughs> Jarvis stories. There's one in particular Avengers cover where he's sitting there. I can't remember exactly what the story is, but he's got a vacuum. Oh, yeah? <laughs> and he's, like, the last remaining Avenger. It's some really good stuff. Some stuff go back. Se- going back to Secret Wars, even, right? Yeah. yeah. Secret Invasion. Yeah. Secret Invasion. Yeah. I don't really know if he exists, though, because he eventually married Aunt May at one point, I believe. Wow. Yeah, because I think that was during when they moved into Tony Stark's uh, building. Yeah. Way back uh, during the other arc in Spider-Man. Um, a great thing this movie also did is the technology. Yeah. You know, I can't remember were smartphones even out at this point, but how they do the whole touch screens and all that kind yeah. of stuff and all that digital stuff going on. It, it's a huge thing nowadays. You can't yeah. see a sci-fi movie like Star Trek or Star Wars. All these things have this technology going on. Yeah, that yeah. automation of the home. Yeah, right? like, exactly. That's a big thing now. And oh, yeah. They pulled that. Like, that was, I think, 2008. I'm trying to remember. I had got my first iPhone, I think, in 2009, maybe. Okay. okay. So that was, like, second gen, maybe first gen in Canada. Right. So, yeah, you're on the cusp of a lot of this. And they're doing the voice 
telecommunication yeah. with Obadiah at that one point. And yeah, that whole animation, that's strung right through the Iron Man series into Civil War and all that. Mm-hmm. That is fantastically done. Like, it's almost believable, right? The, yeah. the kind of the action he does. Oh, yeah. And he's building the suit there and pulling all the different graphics around. Yeah. Because it looks really cool. Looks incredible. Yeah. yeah. And the last main character that we get introduced to here is Pepper Potts, played by Gwyneth Paltrow. So again, a different type of actress in this role. Not an actress that I would have particularly thought but I think this is definitely her best portrayal of Pepper Potts. She seems to fade as we go in. She yeah. has some good stuff in Avengers, but this film in particular, like the chemistry between her and Downey or her and Stark, it is fantastic. Like this, I put this on a level of the the Gwen Peter Parker yeah. chemistry that we do see in Amazing Spider-Man Two, which I think was the best part of that film. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, I think uh, she did really good. Do you, you notice the one scene I thought was pretty funny? They even brought it up when uh, Pepper and uh, Tony are in the rooftop and you know things tensions are getting hot then he goes to get the martinis and then the girl's like oh your your text being sold to you know rebels or whatever to the 10 rings then he just leaves pepper paws yeah. on the <laughs> rooftop like such a dick move tony classic superhero business yeah right? exactly I think, um toby, to- toby mcguire did he do that with spider-man i think he oh did that with yeah Mary jane yeah. dropped her off and yeah Save the day somewhere else yeah, yeah i like that and then they reference it after at the end she even brings it up so that's pretty cool <laughs> Classic. Yeah. So now stepping back into the Afghanistan scene. So coming out of that, we've we've got our introduction of our main cast of characters here. And now we're stepping into the origin of Iron Man. And we get the back end of the sequence of events that we do see Tony getting the shrapnel in his chest. And we do see that in the start of the film. And now that gives us our character's fatal flaw. And then we get the introduction of Yensing, who puts this electromagnetic battery into his chest, powered by a car battery. Like, this is terrifying stuff when you're going this. And I think it's really well shot, too, with yes. kind of mm-hmm. the in and out of hazing. And he wakes up. And, like, how terrifying would that be? Yeah. <laughs> Have some guy looking over at you and, and you're all hooked up to this car battery. In a cave. Yeah. yeah. Um, this instant character, he's, again, a character that comes out of the comic books from the original Tales of Suspense, from the original origin story of Iron Man. Oh, okay. Did you always buy that he was with Tony Stark? Because he becomes quite a pivotal character as we move through this, particularly for Tony Stark's story. But when I first saw this, I remember thinking to myself, this doesn't seem right. I feel like he's playing Tony Stark. Mm-hmm. Did yeah. you always buy that he had this more altruistic way about him? I did. He came off very sincere to me. He just came off like such a kind fellow <laughs> that he just wanted to do do good in, in, in life. And uh, yeah, he, he, he worked for me. Troy's such a nice guy. Yeah. He just believes everybody. Believe everything. Eh? It's like, hey, buddy, I uh, lost my wallet. Can you lend me some uh, bucks to catch the train here? And you Why, know? sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, actually, I was kind of skeptical. I was with you, Tim. I didn't buy it. I was like, is he working for the Ten Rings? Is you know, he just gathering intel on Tony, or what's going on here? So, yeah, it wasn't until after when he's. Uh, well, his death scene, actually, is when I was like, okay, yeah, this guy's uh, legit. <laughs> and he gives some quick exposition here as to what's going on with Tony's heart. It's showing you what's happened, but it's nice to know exactly what the barbs crawling towards his heart. And again, this factors into Tony's mindset when he does realize what his weapons do to people. These aren't always being used on the military types. These are people that are getting injured. They're having the same experiences as he's having, but he doesn't have the benefit of having this electromagnetic in his chest. yeah. yeah. This, this whole sequence here, too, this is when we get 
really the origin story for Iron Man. And how fantastic is it that they found a way to squeeze in the original Tales yeah. of Suspense Iron Man suit, the one that we do see in the original Avengers as well. Like, they could have totally bypassed this, but they found a way to work this in. And I think it's absolutely brilliant. Even from the moment I first saw this movie, and I wasn't completely aware that this actually is a callback to the original comic book series, I thought, this is cool. This makes sense. This is something that he could build from scraps. And I, I love that. I thought it was genius how they pulled it off. It yeah. looked great. It looked fantastic. I mean, for what it was. And it made sense because you got this build-up this whole time. Like, what are they making? What are they making? Especially for an audience that doesn't know thing about Iron Man. Yeah. So when you see them pull this off, you're like, oh, cool. And, you know, it blows the flame and he takes these guys out. He's kind of unstoppable. Kind of a juggernaut almost. Yeah. yeah. Right? And it's not until you get that mask that he kind of machines out of the hot iron, right? Yeah. That he puts it on the table and you're like, wow, there it is. There is the Mark One. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of sweet. It's kind of like uh, Marvel did it twice too when they gave us the Captain America original costume. So it's kind of cool. They've done two callbacks at least yeah. to the original looking art of uh, these characters. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I thought it looked really good. And I liked how it was just so big and bulky and kind of clunky. And then, I mean, because it made sense, right? He wouldn't have been able to do that. And my favorite scene is the hammering montage when he's just standing there just hammering yeah. away. And I was like, that's straight out yeah. of the comic books. Like, I guarantee that's a panel in the origin story. Yeah. The music swells at that point, yeah. too. And yes. the sound effects is also another key component of this movie. And just hearing him hammer away and hearing mm. the gears turn in this and him working. Like, it's such a great sequence. And yeah. it's, again, so economically done. You believe the time that he's in there. You believe what they're working on. And this is also, too, where we get the introduction of the arc reactor, his new heart, if you will. His heart mm-hmm. is broken, the fatal flaw of this character. And we get his first crude attempt at creating himself a self-powered or the electromagnetic that goes into his chest. Until they take it away in Iron Man 3. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True. Uh, you brought up a good point, Tim. Um, you mentioned the music. What did, you, what did you think of the score of this film? I mean, did it, like... You, you talk about great scores and great films like Jaws or Star Wars or Superman 1. What do you think of the score? Like, did, you know, did you get that swell of emotion when he had his first uh, flight and the fight scenes? Like, did you think this was a good score? I'm not talking about the songs that they picked because they, they were on point with each song that they picked, like ACDC, Back, Back in Black. Uh, but just the score, what did you think? I think it's really well done. Like, it's one of these scores that I think it really benefits when they need it to. But otherwise, it kind of falls into the background. I think the incorporation of like ACDC back in black, and that's almost like James Gunn took a few cues from this film because they integrated that into the film. It wasn't a song over top of an action sequence. It actually came into the film very nicely, so mm-hmm. it blended nicely there. And, and it seems like this where he's creating the Iron Man suit that I really do feel the music, the score adds to the film more than it takes away. In some parts, in a lot of it too, when there's more of the exposition, the talking scenes, the slower scenes, it kind of fades to the background don't really feel it yeah no i agree i mean troy we've talked about scores on twitter before mm-hmm. what, are, what are your thoughts on the score uh forgettable for me it's yeah. forget- the, the music i find awesome you know acdc going back you know they had the big track uh, iron man and whatnot yeah. awesome but you know when you think of the first superman right john williams awesome score when you think of tim burton's batman that score you know for the first time being yeah big screen, awesome music even sam raimi's spider-man a little bit okay um, but this, I, I found it pretty forgettable for the score. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Can you think of any MCU film score? Captain America. I yeah. really, really yeah. like Captain America's score. Yeah. Okay. Um, I like the Captain America score, and 
Avengers. Avengers 1 score. That's the only theme I could think of actively mm-hmm. in my mm-hmm. head. Like, yes. When I think about Superman, when I think about Star Wars, these yeah. are all big movies. And yes. That, yeah. I can feel the score when I think about it. Mm-hmm. These movies, yeah, I think about ACDC back in black. I don't yeah. think about the score in this movie. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. Like that first flight, it should have had the swell of emotion where he's yes. got a suit on, he's built it. And I mean, the Mach uh, 3. So he's got that on, and you're like, okay, let's like get that first flight. You want some like uplifting music, and it's just kind of like takes a takes a tone to the background or something. I was just yeah. like, ah, it kind of fell a little bit flat. I mean, it's mm-hmm. there, it's yeah, there, it's, it's there. there, but it's not like you uh, know, Man of Steel. iconic. Yeah, Man of Steel, you know, that score is incredible. Oh, like yeah. Hans Zimmer, Hans yeah, Zimmer just destroys it. Knocks yeah, it that is a good score, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. so good. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So I mean, just to go off topic here, but. Uh, I was just interested in your thoughts on the score and if it scored or if it missed. <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah. And jumping back into this scene in the cave, because this is quite a pivotal scene. The character that is leading this group, this organization that's holding Tony captive, is his name's Raza. He doesn't actually, I don't think, really ever appear in the comic books. I don't know if there's a modern interpretation of him, but he is, again, a character that they've evolved potentially out of one of these Viet Cong type people that we do see in the original Tales of Suspense. But it's interesting because now having the comic book background and understanding a bit more about the Ten Rings, he's constantly there sitting and spinning a ring on his finger. Oh, I didn't even pick that and up. And it, it drove me nuts because I'm thinking to myself, like, this guy isn't the Mandarin. He's not supposed to have the Ten Rings. But it is interesting that he does hold a ring there. And this movie was a lot about technology, right, and bringing and building a foundation. You're not going to bring in these type magic elements into this. And I'm happy that they didn't. But I thought it was really cool that they used the elements of the Ten Ring to build this universe. And this, I think, is one of the first steps that they were taking in building a larger universe and potentially building up a villain for subsequent film for sequels and so i thought it was a really nice seed a really subtle seed if you didn't really know what you're looking for you're not going to grab this right you just assume it's a flag or whatever and i think that's again what marvel did really well in these first movies out of the gates is that they were able to subtly build a foundation for the individualized films but also for something bigger yes yeah you know um i nearly jumped on my seat actually when i got heard the first mention of these 10 rings because again going back to the anime series they did a wicked mandarin arc when he actually loses all of his rings and at the end of every episode pretty much you'd have a little after credit scene where the mandarin found one of his rings oh, so there's a yeah. huge hype point for the mandarin and the 10 rings so when i saw them call that out in this movie i was like oh my god the 10 rings because mandarin's kind of like mandarin is the joker to oh our yeah fans, for sure know? yeah and I, I thought that was awesome how they planted yeah. seeds throughout this movie with the, the 10 rings and i think favreau's original idea going back and listening to interviews and that was that he wanted to have this as a technology-based movie and then eventually move into a technology versus magic based oh, movie oh, yes. would have had so cool 10 rings a a proper mandarin yeah. fighting iron man technology versus magic oh, so man. i think that's what they're trying to build here and i love the reference to the yeah. 10 rings here like i thought mm-hmm. that was so well done so yes. subtle and just a small seed for later on if we get a sequel i wish you got that yeah Damn. i mean it could still come but it seems like a missed opportunity but that's a conversation for another day a couple months in the future yeah yes. <laughs> And then the final escape sequence here out of the cave. It's our first big Iron Man action set piece. And it's really well done. I watched the behind the scenes here about how much practical is actually involved in this. That whole cave was practical. When you go out, pieces of the actual Mark I are practical and they've layered it with CG. Okay. It's so good. Yeah. It holds up. If you take out the complexity of the suit that I know can't physically be done or can't have someone walking in it, I would have thought that this was all practical. Like, yeah. I can't tell 
where the practical ends and where the CG picks up. It's seamless, even when we go into the daylight. Yeah. No, no, I agree. I mean, you bring up this action scene. What was your favorite action scene from the movie? Your favorite, like, fight scene or action scene? Um, this was this one's up there. Yeah. I, um, we'll get to the end one here in a little bit, but I think this one really starts to tell the story of Iron Man a bit more than the others. Like this determination he gets here, and it also has this really emotional moment in it where Yinsing sacrifices himself yeah. for Tony Stark, mm-hmm. and then you get that that nice moment where he's sitting there with him, and he says, "No, my family's already dead," and that gives Tony that motivation. And I think this is a real pivotal point for the character is they've built him up this whole start of this movie about being this very selfish man that only cares about himself he's got pepper here but he kind of a dick towards her right yeah and then you see this guy actually starting to care for you and see someone that's cared for him even knowing who he was someone that has contributed to the death and the destruction of his family of his hometown of gomira but he's actually gone out and saved him and then gives him this motivational speech about doing something with his life do something better and this is such a huge moment in the middle of this massive action piece. And that's something that really stuck with me in this sequence here is that Yinsing Stark moment. And I think that is where you really see the evolution of Tony Stark from what he was before into what he's going to be eventually. Yeah, that's definitely his uh, Uncle Ben moment with yeah. great power. Yeah, yeah. he should right? have said that. Yeah. That would have been so cool. <laughs> it's a powerful scene, though. It yeah, is. it works well. Yeah. Uh, going with the fight scenes, actually, my favorite action scene is probably the first time he dons like the proper Iron Man yeah. costume and goes down to that town and just wrecks havoc. Yeah. He shows off all of his gadgets, all of his tools, and you just get the presence like, wow, that's Iron Man. And, it, and again, it just it holds up so well. It does. Yeah, he gets hit by the tank and then he, he goes and he like destroys the tank. Like the tank shoots, he dodges and he blasts back. Yeah. Such a cool scene. And the noise. This yeah. noise is like lightsaber iconic worthy, right? 100%. This noise like even the squeaking cool. of the suit as yeah. he walks yeah. in the Mark III there. Iconic. Yeah, it's awesome. Wow. So Tween does eventually escape here and we do have Rhodey picking him up. Did you find this was a bit weird? Because there's convenient. actually a deleted scene that explains all of this. Okay. Oh. Yeah. I felt it was a little weird, yeah. I thought it was weird that he was kind of kicking around for a couple of months, and it just so happens that he is the one that picks up Tony Stark here. Yeah. But there is a deleted scene that is on the Blu-ray where it does have Rhodey requesting a transfer to go back to Afghanistan to continue the search for Tony Stark. So he's actively going out there to search for his friend. Wow. He does have a bit of a, a discussion with one of the generals about how He's a lieutenant colonel, and he doesn't need to be out doing this, allocating resource to finding someone that is likely dead. So it makes a lot more sense with that scene in there. It's probably good that they cut it because it's not a scene that you really need. Mm -hmm. But it does explain a bit about why Rhodes is on the chopper that actually finds Tony Stark once he eventually gets in the cave. Okay, that makes sense. I think that's kind of familiar with the comics too. I think that kind of lines up, if if I'm correct. Interesting. Yeah, Yeah, no, that makes sense. I like that. Yeah. Then we end up back in california here for the first of two big press conferences here and this is one where he announces the end of weapon manufacturing with stark industries but what i really like about the scene in particular and i find this to be almost the kickoff of the mcu this is our introduction of phil colson that's right yeah of the strategic homeland intervention enforcement and logistics division you got to work on that name. yes (laughs) a bit of a mouthful but i wasn't aware of shield at the time that this movie came out i did not have any idea here but i can imagine for a comic book reader like looking back on this if i had known that i would have lost my mind yeah it was huge when i heard that was shield i i I lost it because again 
going back to the cartoon animated series uh, Spider-Man, they did such a good job of crossing over with S.H.I.E.L.D. So when they announced, or later on in the film, when they announced this is S.H.I.E.L.D., they, they figured out a way to short form that. And I was just like, oh my god, are they doing this? They're going that route? And it's great. I mean, yeah, I, when I first watched it, I had no idea who S.H.I.E.L.D. was either, because I was more a Spider-Man X-Men kind of guy. So uh, going back, watching it for the first time again in a couple of years, I was like, oh, that's S.H.I.E.L.D. Like, I totally forgot that S.H.I.E.L.D. appeared in Iron Man 1. Yeah. I thought it came much later, like closer to Avengers, but no, he was, he was there from the beginning. Yeah, this becomes the common thread strung through all of the Phase 1 movies. You get Phil Coulson here, who becomes the glue, who eventually motivates the Avengers to become the Avengers. But mm-hmm. this is his first appearance, and this is a character that is not in the comic books. He at is, the time, at least, I guess. At the yeah. time, yeah. yeah. He is then after put into the comics, I believe, oh, in 2011. Sure. Yeah. But this this guy is great. I love the actor here. I love what he's doing in Agent S.H.I.E.L.D. currently. But it's awesome that he had his debut here in the first Marvel Cinematic Universe film. And he is the one, the glue. So. Those Captain America cards. Yeah, the Colston, <laughs> yeah. the Filster, the Cake Eater. <laughs> um, and after this press conference here, we do get a little bit more exhibition here about what the Arc Reactor was about to shut the hippies up and how it was just a myth. We couldn't <laughs> yeah. miniaturize it. It's a dead technology. And you see Tony sitting there smile. And I'd really like to see this interaction again between Obadiah and Tony. It builds some of the tension there, and it really builds up Obadiah more for me. Because Tony is still somewhat unaware of what's going on here. But in the background, as a viewer, you're starting to see exactly what Obadiah is doing mm-hmm. here. And I like this scene because of that. I mean, you look at the Marvel villains. A lot of them are just the mirror image of the hero. So you got Loki with Thor, Abomination with Hulk. This scene here really points to the difference between Obadiah and Iron Man. He really is the mirror image, just the evil version of Iron Man. Yeah. And, I mean, that that's a theme that's been carried on for pretty much every, well, not every, but, like, most Marvel movies up until Ant-Man, where you just get, like, the mirror image, the evil version yeah. of the hero. That goes back just to Marvel characters in general, too. I think it goes yeah. back to superhero characters. Yeah. So it comes yeah. down to economic storytelling. It's about building a villain out of the same technology, out of the same origin story as you have with your hero, right? You're not going to waste time in a movie, especially in an origin movie, trying to describe a whole different origin for your villain. You have your villain born out of the same type of technology, and it just makes it easier. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm of the Christopher Nolan school of thought where you never put in the character's big bad in the first film. Yeah, You save him for the second, because the first film should be all about the hero. Right. And in this film, it is all about the hero, and the hero shines. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the point of the movie where we really kick it into high gear. We finally get Tony Stark working on the Mark II suit, the Iron Man suit that we're all familiar with today. And this is quite an extended sequence. Did you guys found it went on a little too long? Or were you happy with what it actually showed you here? It, it gave you a lot of depth behind the Tony Stark character. Yeah, I really liked it, especially because this suit's based off of um, the cool extremist run. It's right out of the comics, right out of the pages. Even a couple of the poses that he does throughout this movie is right out of that comic book. So um, I really like what they did with the costume, and I really like how they handled that scene. This movie does such a great job of just taking its time with every scene, and I never feel like it's too slow. I feel like the pace of this film is pretty good, so I liked it. Yeah, no, I liked it too. I mean, this film's, like, what, two two hours, 15 minutes? But it's a quick two hours, 15 yeah. minutes. Yeah. Some movies you watch and you look at your watch and you're like, is it over yet? Yeah. This one, two, two hours, 15 minutes just flies by. You're just having fun. Yeah. yeah. 
that's it, right? You're having fun here and you're having fun with Tony while he's building this. And that's one thing that I really liked about it was that it didn't feel ever to me like we're straining here. We're spending too much time because he's got the boots on. He's testing out the flight suit. He's testing out his repulsor ray. So there's a lot going on here and showing you a lot about what this suit can do outside of just giving you, hey, here's a Mark II suit. And then all of a sudden you got all these gadgets and widgets coming out of it, right? So I think it does a great job showing you what the suit can do rather than just saying, here it is. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some funny scenes in there yeah. too, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a complete spin on uh, like training scenes. You know, when you have like Batman gearing up and climbing up mountains and doing his martial arts. This was a, a way way different scene, yeah. handled a lot better, I think. Yeah, and it feels believable too because yes. earlier on in the movie they do show him tinkering with cars. He's down in the shop. He's he's working hands on here, and I think that's yeah. exactly. Yeah. I think that's what makes this more believable for me. That you know you get thinking about and you kind of nitpick sort of things. You're like, well, how did he get this? How did he get that? There's actually a few scenes in the deleted scenes that do show him actually machining these different pieces nice. that he does put together eventually, and I think that it makes the character a bit more believable that you've seen him, they've shown you that he can put things like this together. He can work on the graphics. He can work on the computer. He's got the AI to back him up. Yes. And it's, it's just, it's just a really fun, engaging sequence here. And it is a little longer than I think you would expect it to be, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it's fun. Yeah, it is. What I can take away from that, Tim, because this is the second time you mentioned deleted scenes. We need an ultimate cut. <laughs> no. The only reason I go back to the deleted scenes is because some of the sequences, like particularly with the roadie sequence, where he just ultimately shows up and he's the one that picks up Tony after X amount of days, I think bringing that in provides a little bit of explanation of what they had done originally. These are full shot scenes. Like these yeah. aren't half done scenes oh. with half done CGI and, well. or on green screen or whatever. These are scenes that were actually clipped from the movie that right. were, was part of probably some sort of finished product. I agree with taking them out, but it's just providing a bit more explanation as to why things are the way they are. And again, bringing a bit more of that background information into the film here. Like, I don't think the film suffers because they don't have those scenes in there. It is interesting to understand what scenes were in there originally to explain some of the things that maybe are a little bit of a shortfall. Like, again, I don't think it suffers from it, but some of the scenes (laughs) could have been justified a bit more because of that explanation that you do get in these deleted scenes. Oh, for sure. And while we're talking about the Mark II here, we get the creation of it here. The look. Like, I know we spoke a bit about this, but man, is this a fantastic consider what? Oh, yeah. It's incredible. I love this suit. This is the uh, the silver one, right? Silver and black, so it's not painted yet, or this is the painted one? We get kind of both. The Mark III is the painted one. The Mark II is the silver one. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, I love it. And, I mean, just look at it in full flight. It's awesome. I mean, that's CGI. We talked about it. It's uh, all practical. Yeah. Re- what? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this costume is cool. Like we mentioned before, it's based off the extremist film. Man, probably the first cool, cool looking hot toy, right? When you see this thing, yeah. it's just, ah, oh, and then, you know, Screams toyetic. Right? Yeah. For sure. And then when you go into um, the Ultimate Universe, it was so good that they literally took this costume and put it in the Ultimate Universe because the Ultimate Universe before this movie was kind of a mess, this costume is. It's a little weird, but they pretty much just took this exact same Mark, uh, Mark II, Mark III costume and. I'm putting in that universe. Did they uh, sell action figures for this movie? I don't know. I believe so. This, this is still, again, have. at a time where you did have highly articulated three and three quarter inch action figures. So I'm sure there's an Iron Man line. I personally didn't collect it. Yeah. I didn't even get any of the Iron Man 2 or Iron Man 3 stuff. But yeah. I'm sure there is maybe a very limited run because, again, Marvel was still about the toys, about oh, yeah. that merchandising oh, sure. aspect of it, right? Star Wars introduced the world to it. And I'm sure that there's figures for this. They're probably really hard to get. But would it be Toy expensive. Biz or would it have been Hasbro? Probably Hasbro right Hasbro, now, right? I think at yeah. this time, yeah. Yeah. So maybe someone will go back and look at it. 
Yeah. Yeah. Check it out. If yeah. you can find them, pick them up because I'm sure they're worth a ton now yeah. if they're out there. This is also, too, where we get introduced to this heads up display. And this is something that becomes an iconic piece of the Iron Man character is Robert Denny's head in this CGI with all the diagnostic things going on. Mm -hmm. This was a way to get Robert Downey acting and showing emotion within a film where you do have an Iron Man costume on the outside, right? It's very hard and you can't really show emotion here on this character. But you have Tony Stark in there yelling, screaming, using his face acting. He's a character actor and have his face in there is really important. This was a really cool way to get around just showing Iron Man and having Tony Stark do ad-lib lines in the background genius move yeah right yeah it really gets you inside the the suit the costume the actor you could say right so i really like what they did there with that yeah. it's yeah. a lot of fun too and the graphics when you watch it cool you slow down some of it it's really neat and some of it is believable like we're getting the google glasses now yeah yeah and this is really cool technology that they're attempting to show you here yeah, they played up to it even till uh, Civil War. You know, when Ant-Man goes and basically hijacks uh, Tony Stark's costume, it goes inside the costume, and again, you get to see that shot of Iron Man or Tony Stark going at it, and there's some really clever banter and some, some funny moments in there, so yeah. I really like what they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they've carried this through. I mean, the uh, schematics and the look of this has been pretty consistent throughout all the MCU films. Yeah, and the first mission that we get with Tony Stark here in his Mark III armor is to Gomira. And this is a really personal mission because we have this character, Christine Everhart, this reporter character that we do see him bed earlier on in the film. <laughs> she brings him images of the terrorist organization that held him hostage with his weapons, but also in Gomira, which is the hometown of Yinsing, the character that did sacrifice himself for Tony. So this is a really personal mission and a really great sequence. This is the sequence you were talking about earlier about yeah. this being your favorite sequence here. But the first in flight the first action piece that we get with the iron man proper suit so cool i mean he's fighting tanks he's fighting insurgents and when they're holding all the hostages i mean so many times you'd see the hero walk away and then iron man has his targeting capabilities and he's just like and then they're all dead and you're just like oh man iron man doesn't hold back that's so cool so cool and he's got that little rocket that destroys the big tank and again it comes down to the sound effects so good here like i love how they sound here Except my Iron Man doesn't kill. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) My Iron Um, Man doesn't drink. Yeah. (laughs) That's something that uh, they seem to have shied away from the last couple Iron Man and Avengers film is Tony's alcoholism. Well, because he shot that down after part two, right? Yeah. He's he's, uh, He's probably also a little bit of a sticking point for Robert Downey as well. Oh, true. It's probably very hard to portray a character as a drunk and all this type of things. Like this demon in a bottle thing, they did go down. And we'll talk a bit about that in Iron Man 2 review. Yeah. But I think it's probably best that they stay away from that. Like, there's a lot of things that Tony Stark does struggle with in subsequent movie, like PTSD yes, and all that. Time. So that's kind of pulled into that, I think, a bit, mm-hmm. where he is struggling with something different, with some sort of mental health issue. But it's not drinking, it's not drugs. <laughs> yeah. Um, because that becomes very real. So this sequence is followed up, too, by a nice dogfight sequence with these two I believe they're raptors, these jets, these American jets. Yeah. And again, this is another place where they're displaying the CGI. This is in the middle of the day, which is something that they didn't shy away from, which I really appreciate because you can hide a lot of flaws of CGI in the nighttime. We do see his first sequence in the night, but it's really nice that they did this, similar to what they kind of do in Empire. Like, you don't believe we can do this because all everything in space is easy? Well, hey, we're going to do it in the snow and we're going to do it in the daytime. This, again, I think is another way for them to display 
how good the CGI here is. And we get the reveal by Tony to Rhodey about who he actually is. He's the man in the suit because Rhodey had kind of turned him away, right? Again, it's reconnecting these characters through this action piece, which I think is another economic way of telling this story. We don't need a whole separate sequence for them to kind of rebond here and reconnect. We're doing that as we're having this awesome action sequence. Yeah, again, no, I completely agree. I love this scene. Uh, again, this is the scene that they kind of released from Hall H there and was leaked on the trailers on YouTube and what have you. And um, just love this scene. Just basically kind of being like Rogue One where they're showing you the capabilities of their technology of, or their special effects of what they can do at this time. And it just looked spot on. Yeah. And to this day, holds up. I think it holds up better to than most films you get today. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you look yeah. at some of the films that came out this summer, sometimes the CGI doesn't even hold up. But this one, I mean... This one's almost 10 years old, and it just still looks fantastic. It looks awesome. And as we drive towards the end of this film, we really start to ramp up Obadiah as this main villain type here. We do see him visiting Raza, and we do see the ultimate goal that he's trying to get at, this throne of Tony Stark. He ends up killing Raza. He used that really cool sonic paralyzer type thing. Mm -hmm. He uses it more than once. Sometimes in a film, they have this really cool power, a really cool weapon, use it once and then never again when it could come in handy. (laughs) He uses this twice in the film. I mean, that's awesome attention to detail. Yeah. Yeah. It's really well done. And then we do see Tony Stark almost going to war at this point with his own company saying that the only thing that he's thinking about is the next mission because he's getting his weapons out of the hands of the terrorists. And this is what he's going after. And he tasks Pepper Potts here to go into Stark Industries and steal whatever Obadiah is up to. Because at this point, Obadiah, this was at the benefit, Obadiah admitted to Tony Stark about dealing under the table and trying to have him taken off the board for his own good. So we see Obadiah trying to go almost a diplomatic route somewhat here. I guess we do eventually find out that he did try to kill Tony Stark from that really weird translated scene. Yeah, that's so funny. But this is another pretty intense scene, and this is probably my favorite scene with Obadiah when he's in the office with Pepper Potts here. He is so intimidating, and just Jeff Bridges just brings so much to this character in this scene. Like, you really do see the villain come through here finally in Obadiah mm-hmm. when he's talking and having an interaction with Pepper Potts there. And you do see the fear on her face. She's, this is a really well acted scene on her part as well, because you do see. Her intimidation here and her fear of Obadiah and her yep. finally connecting the dots here that Obadiah is up to no good. Yeah, the tension in the scene is pretty great. I mean, she's downloading all these files and you're just like, oh, don't look, don't look, don't look. And then he finally looks and, you know, the files have already been downloaded. And then as she's leaving, he's like, well, give me the newspaper because yeah. she like uses that to hide the uh, USB stick in. And then she's able to uh, take that out and then you, you see Obadiah realizes what's happened. And then who is it to the rescue? S.H.I.E.L.D. She runs into S.H.I.E.L.D. and then S.H.I.E.L.D. saves the day. So, Well, it doesn't save the day, but S.H.I.E.L.D. saves Pepper. So that was a great introduction to show just how competent uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. was and is at the MCU. Definitely. And I think it is a bit coincidental, but it's a nice way to bring somewhat more organically Phil Coulson and S.H.I.E.L.D. back into this and have them involved at least in the final action piece for this film. And then coming off the back end of that scene with Obadiah as well, we get this scene where he's yelling at the scientist. And we talked about, about this before, about again, being another pivotal moment for him, yep. talking to the scientist, yeah. and kind of hitting him on the chest and saying, yeah. look, Tony Stark was able to build this in a cave with yeah. a box of scraps. <laughs> Jeff Bridges at his best here. Owns Such it. a good line. Yeah. yeah, it's my favorite Jeff Bridges scene in this movie. His acting is incredible. He just goes to show his acting chops here, right? It's just so far. Yeah. And um, just love it. 
Damn, I love that scene. So good. Yeah. <laughs> this eventually what drives him towards stealing the arc reactor directly of Tony's chest. And we come back to the scene. We have seen this paralyzer before. And it makes sense, that technology. It's not just like this magical thing that paralyzes you. I mean, he has like the noise uh, capabilities and it would make sense. I mean, I bought it as believable. I mean, Definitely. it wasn't just something like so outlandish that you're just like, really? Like, oh, because I put this thing in your water, now you can't move for 15 minutes, right? So. Yeah. They did a good job again, I mean, picking up that uh, piece of tech. And one of the themes that's kind of strung through the entirety of this movie is Tony Stark's heart, both literally and metaphorically. We do see the evolution of Tony here, that Tony does in fact have a heart. And it's nice that they cap all that off with Dummy and with him actually reaching and putting the original arc reactor back into his chest from that nice piece that Pepper gave him. Like, I thought this was a really nice sequence before we kick it into high gear. So let's talk about this final action piece here. This this battle between Iron Monger and Iron Man. For me, this is the only part of the movie that I have slight issues with. I think up until this point, we have an absolutely flawless movie. 40 minutes into it, we have the origin story of Tony Stark told. The next 40 minutes or so, we have this great sequence where we're building the mark two the mark three and we get our first couple sequences with iron man stepping into this we have a really great villain in obadiah but then he goes just a little bit off the deep end when he climbs into the suit here the suit is cool i like it it's believable and i think it is again it comes down to we need a villain born out of the same technology so the audience can buy it we don't want obadiah all of a sudden morphing into something different or having the 10 rings come onto shore and do something with tony stark that's a seed for another day and then if you're using the 10 rings you get yourself into a whole different ball game about how do they get here is this a terrorist act and all this yeah. i think it makes sense to use obadiah in this scene and you do need to have this classic comic book fight sequence you need to have this big brawl and that's what this is it's just a massive brawl between two iron suits yeah like what do you guys think of this i didn't really like this scene that much uh fight scene wise it kind of reminded me a little bit of amazing spider-man one and a little bit of wolverine the wolverine where he takes on uh silver samurai when spider-man fights uh the lizard at the end there it just kind of all came together a little too soon at the end and it just wasn't very great it wasn't choreographed that well too the fight scenes were kind of whatever and uh it's dragged out a little bit too long too for the fight scenes and it's just it's kind of a hot mess it's a little transformers like it's just like a big robot on another big big robot yeah i didn't really care for this scene that much yeah like i, I bought the action i thought it was kind of cool i liked the fighting the thing i was kind of against was obadiah gets in the suit and then he goes a little kooky yeah so he plays it pretty straight throughout the whole film but then he gets in the suit and he starts making every like pun to like Tony Stark and I'm just like what is he doing? Like he has n- never said that before. So I, and then Tony's making puns like the quipping was just off the chains. Yeah, it does kind of start to lose its way towards the end of this film and I agree it is a little long, but it does have a nice wrap up to it. I feel like you do get that beat up brawl that comic book type of fighting sequence mm-hmm. here i think people are craving that a bit we've got some really good action pieces here but it's nice to see two iron man kind of battling it out you here. get the payoff too right you do get yeah the payoff. and i agree that it's just maybe taking a step too far for obadiah but to wrap this film up i think this is an appropriate way to do it yeah there are some missteps maybe there is some writing that could have enhanced this a bit better but all in all i think this is it is an engaging action piece and I feel like it does have a very suitable ending where they do have Obadiah die. Mm-hmm. I do like that. It does feel kind of small too, right? Because yeah. that's something we don't get these days in these superhero movies. 
50 buildings are coming down and you know that the whole city is in a state of emergency like this is kind of small scaled which i i do appreciate did you have any issue with pepper Potts being involved in this final action piece okay i'm just gonna say this how does she not die at the end she's just gonna scoot off but... she like hits the lever there's a she, like iron giant falls all these glass falls on her a big explosion and then she's fine yeah. It's like, how did she survive? Maybe it's all that extremist. Maybe she really can breathe fire just like in Iron Man 3. So she really is the... Um, <laughs> She's the Mandarin. Mandarin right? yeah. <laughs> I felt that she fit into the sequence. I think other movies she doesn't fit into as well. Like she seems a bit shoehorned into the sequence. But it makes sense why she's there. And I'm happy to see her again be involved in the final battle here. And I think all in all, it's a, an acceptable end, an acceptable fight sequence for this film that has been almost flawless from start to finish here it'll be interesting going forward watching the mcu how all these final battles and fight sequences how they compare to each other i mean this is one thing i'm going to be really looking forward to when we go to uh, incredible hulk and iron man 2 is because i mean your end fight should be your big explosion your big bang your big big conclusion and so um they, i mean they bring it out here but i think there's better action sequences in this film compared to the last one Oh, definitely. So this movie ends with another press conference. This press conference is directed somewhat by S.H.I.E.L.D. They've given him an alibi and they said, look, we're going to say he's your bodyguard, oh. which is beautiful because it's straight out of the comic yes. book. Yes. For the longest time. Yeah. For the longest time. And when they ruined that, I mean, the first time coming out of the movie, actually, that's my only, only complaint. I was like, I can't believe they ruined that because nobody knows that Iron Man is Tony Stark and he's just his bodyguard. For the longest time, they, they've done that, right? But I mean, looking back and even going into part two, as I, I totally accepted it. It makes sense with this universe that they're trying to establish. So, you know, no faults there. It's all good. Yeah, yeah. Marvel doesn't seem to have the secret identity thing. I mean, who has a secret identity? Thor doesn't, Hawkeye doesn't. I don't know if Hulk does. I mean, do no, people Hulk know? No. no, and then like even Black Panther recently, like, they yeah. immediately revealed who he was. Yeah, yeah. I guess only Spider-Man right now. In, yeah, right yeah. Now he's the only have, one. Uh, a secret identity. Falcon? Well, no. no, they must know who no, Falcon. Because yeah. those guys like like Falcon and Hawkeye and Black Widow are like they're agents of yeah. Shield. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Falcon's not so much, but not so much. Yeah. And that's a big departure from comic books because if you read the comic books, the staple of superheroes is secret identity. Going back since comics started, you never revealed who the superhero was, yeah. and Marvel kind of bucked that trend. I mean, to tell I think a different story where in the sequels and stuff they're not like trying to hide their identity. They're just like we're out. This is who we are. Accept it and move on and just tell like different stories. So. Hats off to them. I mean, I didn't like it at first when I saw yeah, it, same. but uh, I've grown to appreciate it because of what they've done after. So, this screams Marvel, right? Yeah, they're watching yeah. the trend. Here's their first movie, and they're going out on a press conference. And him saying, "I am Iron Man." Yeah, yeah. Here is Marvel Studios. Yes, this yes. is what we're doing. Yeah. Does so well. And I think that just screams yeah. like this is the culmination, the exclamation point on this film is just this "I am Iron Man" line. Yeah, like, I am Iron Man. I think it's so good. It's suitable, especially because you know they're coming off of Civil War quite a while now from the comic books, where they've dealt with the identity crises and all that. And Iron Man at this point has already been established as Tony Stark for quite some time. So I think it makes sense that they're just like you know what, let's just we've already evolved our character in the comics. Let's just stick him this way yeah. into the cinematic universe. And doesn't yeah. it make sense for Tony Stark to say that? Like it he does. can't keep that in. Exactly. Oh yeah. yeah. Like it would be weird for the character to be like, okay, I'm going to keep this a secret, yeah. right? Because no. a lot of people already know who he is, Rhodey yeah. and Pepper, and so you see this through the movie building. And mm -hmm. I think it's a great way to end the movie. It I is. am Iron Man. It is. It would have been cool, you know, just to get a little little scenes here and there, being like, yeah, my bodyguard will handle it. But yeah. you know, for the most part, I, I love what they did here in this movie. Yeah. 
Yeah. And we finally get to the dropping of shield for here. Coulson does say you can drop that, yes. just call it shield. Yes. Again, a beautiful way to end this movie to start to build this foundation of shield that is strung right through this universe. Mm-hmm. So, and then doesn't stop there. Does no. not. But I didn't know this. So when I went to see Iron Man, I woke up, I saw like the last like 10, 15 minutes. And then the credits roll. I'm like, okay, I'm out of here. It wasn't until I got home and I was on the internet. And I was like, what? There's an after credit scene? Yeah. Like, what's an after credit scene? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do to wait. We waited and we saw Nick Fury show up. And again, Ultimate Universe, I mean, it wasn't super new. But for me, because I just kind of getting back into comics at this point, it was a little new. And to see the Nick Fury, I'm like, that's not the Nick Fury that I know, but I buy it because he has the eye patch anyways, and it's Samuel Jackson. And I just thought it was so cool. You know, you got your first introduction to Nick Fury there. Yeah. Yeah. Like part of a bigger universe. Now. Oh, man. Is that the best after credit scene they've ever done? For the Marvel? For anyone. I can't even think of anyone else that really does them. It might not be the best after credit scene, but it's definitely the one that is probably the most prominent in my mind. Yeah. I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers Initiative. You know, you're much, you're part of a much bigger universe now. That speaks volumes for what they were planning. Because when you look back, even when we talked about at the top of the episode about how they didn't have control of these characters until a couple of years prior to when Iron Man was in active production, they were just getting back Thor, they were just getting back Black Widow. Yeah. So there's a lot going on there. So you can see the evolution of Marvel very quickly there, and they were setting the tone for what was coming in the future right from the get-go here. This wasn't something that was put in three, four movies down the road. This is the first movie out of the gates, and they've got something this big in it. They've established Samuel L. Jackson. They've established S.H.I.E.L.D. here. And now they've got Nick Fury. Like, this is just so well done. I absolutely love it. There are other after credit sequences that are probably like more, but this here is probably one of the most important. Yeah. I love this one. I think I think for me, my old time is probably the Thanos that was oh, yeah. Thanos okay, was yeah. just I, I couldn't Man. believe they, they did what they did there. Yeah. And uh was it Steve Rogers when we see him wake up in Manhattan and New York? That was, was part like, of the end of the movie. That's part of the yeah. end of the movie. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah, so I'm going with the Thanos one. Cool, so. cool. Yeah. So before we wrap it up here, just gotta ask you, I mean, we've been talking about some other MCU films as we've been discussing this film. In your guys' opinion, is it possible to watch this movie in isolation now and kind of just take it for what it's worth? Or do you watch these films now and do you think about the much larger MCU universe? Like, can you just watch this without thinking about, oh, okay, so then that's Rhodey, then he turns into War Machine, and then, you know, you you have all these seeds weaving in and out. Can you just watch this as a solo film like Jaws or, um, I'm trying to think of, uh, I'm drawing a blank now, but, you know, like just like great films. Just, just solo films. I think 100%. I think actually that's something that people don't talk enough about this film is it stands on its own two feet. It's such a good standalone film and it sprinkles other setup, right? As opposed to a movie I'm not going to really go, <laughs> go towards. But if you listen to the podcast, to the Nerd Room, you know exactly what film I'm talking about. But yeah, no, I think this movie really just holds its own. Yeah. I have to kind of agree with that and yeah. kind of not. I had to say that you can watch this film in isolation, get everything you need out of it. But I think that they've built this in a way that you are supposed to think about the rest of the universe. The same way that comic books are written in a certain way that it makes you realize that you are part of a bigger universe. This film really does that. So I don't think it's ever intended for you to think about it as an isolated film, as a one-off from a studio. I think this is always intended to be a much larger universe, a much larger continuity built within the very first cinematic universe. So I'd have to say, no, you can't watch it in isolation, but yes, you can watch this as an independent film. You don't need to see or have any prior knowledge. And I think 
it does benefit from being the one that is the first out of the yes. gates here. Yes. But I think this is probably Marvel's best entry yeah. as far as original character origin story type film. Um, even better than, you know, we talked about Doctor Strange yeah. and we talked about even Guardians of the Galaxy. I, I talk about it as an original entry. I know it's an ensemble cast, but I think this is probably Marvel's best first entry into a franchise. This is now making me rethink my order of MCU films. And I'm interested going forward here because in February, we're going to be talking about The Incredible Hulk. And I'm really looking forward to building this whole foundation of MCU films and going back and re-watching some of these. Like the films I've watched recently are all Civil War, Doctor yeah. Strange. And I haven't gone back and revisited, especially these Phase oh, 1 geez. films yeah. in a yeah. long time. So I'm really looking forward to, to building these up and discussing these with the hindsight of the MCU of what it is today and looking back at these films as to what they did as being the foundational movies to build this universe up on. So yeah, really excited about going forward here. Super stoked that I got to rewatch this film a couple of times and actually yeah. discuss it here on the podcast. So make sure you tune back in next month, February, for our review of Incredible Hulk. And make sure to check out our other podcasts as well. We're talking every single Thursday about comic books, film, movies, doing movie reviews. And every Monday we do a after show, a Star Wars Rebels after show. We have a huge component of Star Wars within our podcasts. So make sure you go check out our other podcasts in the same feed you're listening to right now and be sure to tune back in here for a lot more MCU talk. If you'd like to be a part of this retrospective series and ask questions, throw speculation for what's coming in the future, or revisit the films and watch them as we go through this and send us your thoughts. We'd love to integrate some of the listeners' thoughts into this overall discussion. Is there things that we miss? Is there big things that are stuck into this film that no one's actually seen and you feel that are significant to discuss? We'd love to hear that. You can always get us at hashtag enter the nerd room on Twitter. You can always email us at thenerdrm at gmail.com or hit us up on our Facebook or YouTube pages. Just search the Nerd Room Podcast. Sounds good. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. I'm glad we're doing this. So many times, I mean, we don't go back and watch these films. You kind of just have a set idea in your mind of what these films are like. And going back and rewatching all these, I'm excited to see where we go from here. Yeah, I, I can't wait. Looking forward into this whole uh, little new podcast that we're doing. And thanks for listening, guys. All right, guys. Until February for the Nerd Room MCU Retrospective Series. I'm Tim. I'm Troy. And I'm Sanjay. And thank you for entering this much larger universe. <laughs> nice. I want to talk to you guys about the Nerd Room Initiative. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a Nerd Room Podcast production. You can find our hosts, Tim and Troy, on Twitter at TheNerdRM and TroyTheBoy87. Don't forget to subscribe to The Nerd Room on iTunes, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search The Nerd Room Podcast. Be sure to head over to StarWarsCommonwealth.com to find other podcasts on the Star Wars Commonwealth Podcast Network, including Talk Star Wars, Generation X-Wing, Tumbling Saber, Rogue Squadron Podcast, and the Skyhopper Podcast. Follow the Star Wars Commonwealth on Twitter at SWCommonwealth and take your first steps into a larger world.